All right, well, we've set the context with uh, the first five chapters. Let's pray again and ask God to help us. Uh, Father, we th thank you for your word. We pray at this late hour that you would uh, teach us, give us energy to concentrate on what you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So now we come to the seven seals, chapter 6, 1 through 8. Eight five, and um, I I want to suggest here. So I want to suggest here that the seven seals can be correlated with what we see in Matthew uh, twenty four, uh, in the Jesus end time eschatological uh, discourse. So. Um, so my, my argument here is, of course, that discourse is about the destruction of Jerusalem, but I think that discourse in Matthew 24 is also a, a pattern for, for, the, for, the, uh, for all of redemptive history and for the end of the age. So, so here we go. This is what I'm saying. I'm saying that the, the, seven, the, the seals characterize life from the first coming of Jesus, from his resurrection to the second coming. So you see what I'm saying here? These, these seals, I'm, I'm arguing, they do, not, they do not pertain only to the end of history, but these seals have been operating in history since Jesus rose from the dead. So let's look at them quickly, right? The first, the first seal is broken, the lamb opens one of the seven seals, and a voice like thunder says, come, out comes a white horse, its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Who is, who is this riding on a white horse? If we read Revelation intertextually, the rider on the white horse is Jesus. He's the one who's on the white horse in chapter 19, verse 11. And this conquering is the spread of the gospel throughout the inter-advent age. And that's what Matthew 24 says. This gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world, and then the end will come. Some people even understand this to be the Antichrist, but I, but I think that's a wrong and mistaken reading, and it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit with what we see in, in the book of Revelation itself. So, I understand this to be the spread of the gospel throughout the inter-advent age. What is the second seal? This, the, the second seal is broken. We have a second living creature. You know, he picks up language from Zechariah and the horses and so forth and so on. The Old Testament is used so often here. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So, so what, what is the second seal? It's war. So this age is characterized by the progress of the gospel. And, and what did Jesus say in the eschatological discourse in Matthew 24? There will be wars and rumors of war. So this age is characterized by the progress of the gospel. And indeed, it is characterized by war. What is the third seal? Chapter 6, verse 5. There's a black horse that comes out. The rider has a pair of scales in his hand. 
And it says a quart of wheat for a denarius, a denarius is a day's wage, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This, this is a way of saying that this present age is characterized by famine. And that's what Jesus says again in Matthew 24. There'll be wars, rumors of war, and there will be famines. So, you know, many, many people read this passage, as I said, talking about only the end of history. But I think as you begin to see what the author of Revelation is talking about, I think you, you will agree, this characterizes life all throughout this age. The gospel is progressing. There have been wars throughout history. There have been famines throughout history. And then, and then the breaking of the fourth seal, and you see death and Hades, and there's killing and famine and pestilence. And again, this characterizes life in this present evil age. He opens the fifth seal, and there you see the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So the book of Revelation recognizes that believers were being put to death, probably especially by Roman imperial power, by Caesar, right, or, and by local authorities. So this is a real experience. And these souls are crying out with, with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. What, one of the things I want to point out to you, those who dwell on the earth, you see that phrase? That phrase is used repeatedly in Revelation. That becomes a technical term for unbelievers, right? All people, believers, dwell on earth as well. But in Revelation, and, and, and the book is not denying that we dwell on earth, but in Revelation that becomes a term, a technical term for unbelievers. So they say, when will you avenge our blood on, on, on the earth dwellers? The earth dwellers are those who have persecuted true believers. Then they were each given a white robe. Why a white robe? Because they're pleasing to God. I don't think we're literally given a white robe. I think it's imagery. It's a picture. And told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. So this inter-Advent age is characterized by the progress of the gospel, by war, by famines, by various disasters, and the persecution and martyrdom of the church. And again, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, doesn't he? They, they will kill some of you, and they will put you to death. So all these things characterize this age from the resurrection to the second coming. I also want to point out this prayer is a good prayer. This prayer is pleasing to God. O Lord, the saints say, who are being persecuted and judged and put, in the put to death, when will you judge and avenge our blood? Because God is a just God, and the church of Jesus Christ prays for its enemies, prays that the unbelievers will be converted, but it also prays, Lord, enact your justice. And those who have persecuted your church and have not repented, Lord, when will you judge them? How long, O Lord? 
How long, O Lord, before you vindicate your name and vindicate your people? That's a good prayer. And that's a prayer we should pray as well. Lord, vindicate your people. Judge the wicked. God's judgment of the wicked is an indication of his goodness, isn't it? For the wicked to be judged, if there's no judgment of the wicked, then it raises question about God's goodness. So, he opens the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and there was a great earthquake. Now, I want to argue, along with many others, wherever the earthquake takes place in Revelation, now we're at the end. This is this is the final judgment. This is the end of history. So we're now, you know, the first five seals characterize this present evil age, but now we've come to the end. And the sun became black as sackcloth, picking up many passages from the Old Testament, Isaiah 34, but other passages as well. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Will this happen literally? Maybe. But perhaps it's just apocalyptic language describing the end. So I'm open. Maybe this, this is literal language, but given the fact that Revelation is so symbolic, perhaps it's just a picture of the end. The sky vanished like a scroll. All this is very informed by these Old Testament passages that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. By the way, if we just flip ahead to chapter 16, if you do that with me, I want you to see something here. Chapter 16, this is the seventh bowl And we read in chapter 16, verse 20, and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Almost exactly the same language, right? But everyone agrees the seventh bowl is the end of history. So, the seventh bowl and the sixth seal are both the end of history. So what we have here is recapitulation. That's a very important theme. He, John zooms to the end of history. We're going to see this in this book. And then he starts over again. So, and, and here's another indication of this. Chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. That's the end of history too. Very similar language to what we find in chapter 6. So what I'm arguing in chapter 6 is he's talking about the end, the final judgment. So what, how do people respond? Then, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves. These are the wicked, right? They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks on the mountains, picking up language from Hosea, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
So this is the final judgment, and what are they saying? We gotta get out of here. This, this is the final day. First of all, did you notice God and the Lamb are put together? Hide us from God and from the wrath of the Lamb. Hey, rams aren't, uh, lambs aren't wrathful, right? Lambs are gentle. Not this time, <laughs> not here, right? First time he suffers, atoning for the sins of his people. The second time, the lamb is coming with wrath, right? Hide us for the great day of their wrath has come. It's the day of the Lord. It's the final day. Another indication it's the final judgment. It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of wrath. It's the end. So we ought not to read Revelation, I'm suggesting to you. You ought not to read this as a linear narrative, starting in chapter 1, ending in 22, and the story just progresses. We're at the end. This is the end of history. This is the final judgment. The day of their wrath has come. And and, and here's the question, the most important question in life, and who can stand? Who can stand when the wrath of God comes? Now, chapter 7 is going to be a huge parting of ways. We have a little bit of an interlude, but it's an interlude where I think John answers the question at the end of chapter 6. The great day of God's wrath has come, and the wrath of the Lamb who can stand, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, who can stand? The 144,000. That's who. Who can stand? Those who are sealed. Those who are protected. Well, let's, let's look at this. Here's my reading. You know, some chapters really reveal different readings of Revelation. Here we go. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. First of all, that solves one problem once and for all. The earth is indeed flat because there are four corners. So anybody who tells you otherwise, they don't believe the Bible. Well, I mean, clearly. Another indication we have symbolic language, right? Four winds, four corners of the earth. He's just saying the whole world, right? There's four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or the sea or against any tree. I would argue the wind there stands for, symbolizes the final judgment, right? It's just a picture of the judgment. And he says, no wind yet, no wind yet, not, not the final day of wrath yet, because we have an interlude. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I interpret that to say, in symbolic language, may there not be the final judgment until the 144,000 are sealed. And the 144,000 are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he itemizes them, right? 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So, so this is how I think this narrative is working. The final day of judgment has come. Who's going to be protected from God's wrath? The 144,000 who are sealed. But then the question comes, who are the 144,000? Many understand the 144,000 to literally be Jews 
from the 12 tribes. And I'm going to suggest a different interpretation. I, I, I respect and honor those who have a different reading, but, but I don't think it's the right reading. So I, I, I want to argue here that the 144,000 represent the church of Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles together. And people say, well, wait a minute, he says 12,000 from these 12 literal tribes. But here's my arguments, here I go. The first argument is, the question is, who is sealed from the wrath of God? And the answer is, all the people of God are, right? Not only Israel, who can be protected from God's wrath? Actually, I have to dip into chapter 14 to defend this as well while we're there because the 144,000 come up again. So look at chapter 14. I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now you can see where's Mount Zion? I am arguing Mount Zion here is heaven. It's Mount Zion is heaven, and where are the 144,000? Well, they're with the Lamb. And, and they have the Lamb's name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. They belong to God. They're the redeemed, right? Well, more on that in a minute. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So what are they doing in heaven? They're, they're playing, they're listening to harps and playing harps. So indeed it is true. If someone says, what will you be doing in heaven? We will be strumming harps, you know? And I, for one, who do not know how to play the harp, nor any instrument for that matter, I look forward to it with great eagerness. But seriously, for a moment, isn't this symbolic language? Because music is beautiful, right? This is not a literal picture of heaven. What is he saying? In heaven... There's, there's nothing quite like music to just, and, and we could all testify to this, right? Music reaches us at a very deep and profound level in ways that we can't even fully articulate. articulate. So we can say this is his picture of what it means to be in heaven and the picture, what a, what a beautiful and wonderful picture. So when I say it's symbolic, I'm not saying it's not real, right? He is describing the indescribable. How do you describe heavenly existence? Well, one beautiful way to describe it is in terms of the effect of music. So, uh, they were singing a new song before the throne. People sing a new song when God redeems them, right? And before the four living creatures and before the elders. By the way, I think that's an argument that the four living creatures and the elders are not among the redeemed, right? The 144,000 are singing the song before them. No one could learn that song except the 144,000. And look how he describes them. The 144,000 are those who had been redeemed from the earth. I want to argue that's all the redeemed. He doesn't say only from Israel here. It's all the redeemed. It's the redeemed from the earth. So who are the 144,000? It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's you and me. You know, well, I'll, say, I'll save this for a minute. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Does anybody want to take that literally? 
I don't think so. Actually, it contradicts other scriptures, right? Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that if you deny marriage and say that marriage is, is, uh, is somehow defiling, that's a doctrine of demons. So surely he's not saying that to be married and engage in sexual relations is defiling, but it fits perfectly with the Old Testament, doesn't it? Where uh, the worship of other gods is described as idolatry, as spiritual prostitution. So I think that's what he has in mind. They have not defiled themselves with women. They have not worshiped false gods. They are like, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 11? Two, I want, to, I want to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So I think, I think John is picking up that language, and, and, and here's my point. It's clearly symbolic, right? But it's, it's symbolic of something real, our purity before Christ. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They're His disciples. They've been redeemed from mankind as the firstfruits for God and the Lamb. So they belong to God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So who are the 145,000? They are, they are those who are sealed and protected from the wrath of God. They are indeed the, the people of God. Here's another argument. The number 144,000 is clearly symbolic. It's 12, a very significant number in the Bible, times 12, times 1,000. Numbers in Revelation are symbolic over and over again. I think, my reading, John is screaming to us, this is a symbolic number. Therefore, it is not limited just to a literal 144,000, but it's a representative. We see at the end of the book, there are 12 apostles in the foundation of the temple and 12 tribes of Israel, one people of God, 12 times 12 times 1,000. That's, that's the story that's, that's the story of, uh, that's our story, finally, as well. Um, another, another argument I would make in this regard is there is no listing of tribes like this in the Old Testament. If you say, well, he lists, he lists uh, these 12 tribes, but they're not listed like this in the Old Testament, and I think it's very significant the tribe of Dan is missing. So, so it really isn't a listing, literally, of the 12 tribes that we see in the Old Testament. Now, and here's another argument I want to make that I think is very significant. Verse 4, I heard, I heard the number of those sealed, 144,000. But then verse 9, I looked and there, and there was a great multitude. He hears 144,000. He sees a great multitude. My argument is that's the same group. That's the same group. Have we seen this before? We have. He's told about the lion, but he sees a lamb. Same person, right? He's told in chapter 5, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looks, it's the lamb. Same here. He's told about 144,000, but when he sees, it's the great multitude. It's the same people talked about from different angles, I would argue. So, I think we have, no, one more, one more argument that I forgot. 
In chapter 2 and in chapter 3, I already mentioned this, the Jews are described as a synagogue of Satan. And the very language that is used, Psalm 86, of Gentiles, Psalm 86 of Gentiles bowing before Jews, it's reversed. And the Jews are going to bow before the Gentile Christians. So I think we have another indication in John that Christians are the restored and true Israel, the true people of God, those who are sealed. One, one more implication. The way most people interpret this, or many people interpret it at least, this is a story about people in the future, but it isn't the story about our lives. But my, in my interpretation, you are part of the 144,000. All Christians are. This Revelation is not an abstract book written to these people in the first century about something that's going to happen a long time after they're dead. No, Revelation is about their lives. It's a pastoral word to them. And he's saying to these people who are suffering, he's speaking to their situation and to their life. And he's saying, you're being persecuted and you're suffering, but God is going to protect you and seal you. Okay, let's, we got to keep going. I probably almost spent too much time on that, but it's a very important section. Chapter 7, verse 9, same group. Now it's pictured as a great multitude. No one can number from every nation, every, all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne. Where are they? Where's the throne? It's in heaven. And they're before the Lamb, and they're clothed in white robes because they've been sealed and protected and saved. And they have palm branches in their hands. Why do people have palm branches? Because they're rejoicing. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so they're praising God for saving them, right? And the angels were standing around the throne in heaven, right? We have a heavenly scene here. And around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever, amen. Is the, you know, the, the worship songs in Revelation itself are just so wonderful and beautiful, aren't they? Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? So this is, I think this happened, but it's also a literary device, isn't it? To cause us to slow down. I said to him, I don't know, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are those who are sealed and protected? It's those who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who's the 144,000? Who's the great multitude? Who are those who are spared from wrath? What's the picture? It's us. We... Our robes have been washed and made white by the blood of the Lamb. What is chapter 7 fundamentally about? It's about the cross, isn't it? Again, right? that, that, that's what it's fundamentally about. What is the great tribulation? People, you know, there's lots of disagreement here. I would argue that the great tribulation is the whole period from Jesus' ascension to the second coming. So we're, we're in the great tribulation. It's the whole period we're in. So it's all those, all the saints who come out of life in this world. I, I, don't, I don't think there are good grounds for restricting it to seven years or to three and a half years. Therefore, 
because they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Are they really in heaven? You say, maybe I doubt that. Come on, I don't know, but I want to try to convince you. They're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. Guess what? Guess what chapters 21 and 22 say? There is no temple. What do you mean they serve him in his temple? It's symbolism, his presence, right? John invites us to read this in terms of the whole book. There's no literal temple here. There's no temple in the new creation. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Isn't this heaven? This is Revelation 21. When we get to the new creation, it's the very same language, right? They won't thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. I love that verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The lamb is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? He's God. I mean, he picks up that language from Psalm 23. Lambs aren't shepherds. This lamb is, right? Striking image, isn't it? It's so striking how he writes this. He will guide them to the springs of living water. God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. That's what it says in Revelation 21 about the new creation. We're in the new creation. This is recapitulation. The book's over. Let's close it. Good night. No, we're not doing that. But we could. It's all over right here, right? We're in the new creation. Every tear is wiped away. You come to the springs of living water. I would argue because we're not used to reading apocalyptic literature, we think, oh, it's got to just be a consecutive story. But there's no reason you have to write like that. You can, you can tell a story from different angles again and again. So, the, when the Lamb opens the seventh seal, the seventh, the seventh seal becomes the pathway to the seven trumpets. And I would argue what we have here is a literary device. It's a literary device. When he opens the seventh seal, I'll say more about that. There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. What's that about? In the Old Testament, Zephaniah 2.20, and uh, Habakkuk, uh, the, the, or is it Habakkuk 2.20 and Zephaniah 1.7? I, I might have reversed those. But there's silence before judgment, right? There's silence before judgment. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Seven, such a big number here, isn't it? And seven trumpets, so the seven trumpets are coming. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. So the, the prayers of the saints are, are pictured as incense wafting up, up to God, right? And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What is John saying there? The prayers that God, God, God will judge the earth and will judge the wicked because of the prayers of the saints. Because the, prayer, the, the saints pray, right? Uh, your kingdom come, may your will be done. And finally those prayers are answered fully at the second coming, but they're answered throughout history as well to some, to some extent. So as we come to the seven trumpets, I want to argue that it's a, we've, already, we've come to the end with the seals, but John connects them by way of a literary device. The seventh seal opens the seven trumpets. And so I want to suggest to you once again 
The seven trumpets represent what happens all throughout history, from the resurrection to the second coming. So what John is doing is he's recapitulating, retelling the story. That's what I mean by recapitulating. He's retelling the story from another angle. It's kind of like, you know, what a kaleidoscope is, right? You shake the kaleidoscope and you get a different picture. He shakes it again, shakes the kaleidoscope and says, now, same material, but another angle. Another angle on the same story. I think that's what's going on here. So, what, what's going on in these trumpets? We're going we're gonna to do these fast because we can't do everything uh, slowly. So, what we see, the first angel blows his trumpet, and these, these judgments are very much like the Exodus, right? But they're kind of blown up. Exodus judgments that are, that are blown up. And, um, and the judgments represent a third in chapter, in chapter 8, right? A third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Second angel blows his trumpet, something like a great mountain burning with fire. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. The third one blows trumpet. A star falls. A th and a third of the rivers and springs of water are made bitter, right? The fourth one blows his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. Now, what, what's, what's going on? This is not easy to interpret. First of all, it's apocalyptic language, but secondly, John provides us no explanation of the image, which, you know, actually there are other apocalypses where they're written, and often the apocalyptic writer stops and tells us what the images mean, but John doesn't do that. I, I actually think this is one of the hardest chapters in the whole book to kind of like, what is exactly going on? But, but notice the language of one-third, and I would argue what, what, John, what John is saying, life on earth is marked in this present age by, by significant difficulties. The, 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 the world is functioning, right? But it's one-third. In significant ways, there are judgments on the earth, and they do, they, they come in the natural sphere, right? They, 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 they strike us in terms of, of the natural world, water, ships, uh, the atmosphere. So I don't think he's speaking literally, but, but this world is marked by many, many disruptions and catastrophes and difficulties. And he's saying this, this characterizes life in the world we live in. What's John, Paul's way of saying this, nature, when we fell into sin, the natural world fell too, right? The world is groaning, Romans chapter 8. So I, th I think that's what he has in mind. Chapter 9, so we, we must move on. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. This is a very interesting text. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Maybe that's Satan. I actually think it's a good angel, but a lot of people think it's Satan. Could be, but it's hard to be sure. Anyway, he's given the key to the shaft to the bottomless pit. He opens the shaft, and, and then smoke comes out, like, right? Like a great furnace. The sun and air darkened with the smoke. Out, out of the smoke come locusts on the earth. But this is symbolic language. Picking up, right, the book of Joel, you can read about the locust judgments. Can I just say here, one of the reasons Revelation is hard for us to read is because we're, we're we, we don't read the Old Testament very much, right? And those locust judgments come. But, they're, but John always tweaks these Old Testament passages because 
These aren't like the locusts of Joel. Because why? Because they're like scorpions. And furthermore, verse 4, this is very symbolic. These are very strange locusts because they don't harm the grass or any green plant or tree. Oh, no, these locusts go after people, <laughs> right? That's what he says. They go after people who don't know God, who don't have the seal. They torment people for five months, but they don't kill them. Now, I think that five months, by now, you know, you're going to say, I think that number is symbolic. I think it's symbolic of the whole inner Advent age. And uh, their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And, and because of that, people will seek to die and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And then he describes what the locusts look like and tells us that they sting and hurt and people. And, and their master is Apollyon, who I think is Satan. That's the master of the locusts. So what, what does that mean? Well, I, I, I think, and, and I'm, it's just not me. Many people think this. I think these locusts are demonic, demons. And, 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 and how do we relate this today, to today? I think what John is saying is the life of belie- unbelievers. Remember, this is apocalyptic language, exaggerated to some extent. But, but I, I think this is a judgment that's taken place from the right, resurrection to the second coming. I think he's saying the life of unbelievers is characterized by misery and torment. Now, not, not every moment, right? He's not saying that. He's not saying peop- unbelievers don't have some happy times. But, you know, even as believers, we can struggle with this, right? And I think, I think, I think what John has in mind here is there's a misery there's a misery in human life. It's a misery that's such, again, it's not literal language, that people's, it's, people live a kind of living death, right? They're alive, but there's a misery that also invades their lives, so to speak. That doesn't mean everybody's suicidal. But, but, but I just want to say this. You know, we don't see people's thoughts. And people hide from others and I think unbelievers do particularly, not always, but people hide from others the kind of misery and torment they feel in their hearts. I mean, I, one of my dearest friends, he spent a whole day with this guy, a friend of his, the whole day, the next day, the guy got up and killed himself. Not a hint, the day before. All day, the day before, they just were hanging out and having fun. The next day he killed himself. Not, not the slightest hint in the world the misery that can be in people. And so I don't, I, right, don't overestimate what I'm saying. I don't think John's saying everybody's, everybody's in that condition, but I think he's saying one of the results of the fall and that there's a demonic influence that affects human beings. So this is, this is, uh, this is God's, uh, God's judgment on human beings who, have, who don't have the seal, who don't belong to God. Then, then the, the sixth seal... He blows his trumpet, and you have uh, four angels who are bound to the great river Euphrates. The Euphrates is the border of the promised land. On the other side are the unbelievers, right? And the Euphrates is also the border between Rome and the, the dreaded Parthians in the eastern part of the empire. So you, those angels are released, and the hordes of evil will come. And I think, again, almost everyone agrees, no, this isn't the Chinese army. The 200 millions, no, no, no. 
This, this is uh, another demonic horde. And the number is, the, the, the number of demons that are released, they are countless in, in their numbers. And uh, these, the, the, these are very unusual creatures again, right? The, uh, we read in verse uh, 19, for the power of horses is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, demonic. Tails of horses aren't like serpents. This, John, John blows things up, right, and says these are demonic forces that work in the world. The judgments God brings on this earth, both the physical world and on human beings, those judgments, the misery that characterizes human existence, call on people to repent and turn to God. That's why he says in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, the rest of mankind, those who were not killed, didn't repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Obviously, John, again, this is apocalyptic, right? John isn't saying no one repents because there's people becoming believers. What he concentrates on is the many who don't, do not repent. And what is John saying? When you look at the world and the misery that's unleashed on the world, which is due to God's judgment on sin in part, right? It should call on people to repent, but they don't but they don't. And again, I believe, I'm, you know, I'm, I get to teach this book so I can share with you all my biases, but I believe this characterizes all of human life, not, not just seven years at the end, not just three years at the end. This, 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 is, this is a representation of, of human history because John's speaking to his readers, to their lives. He's not just telling them about something in a time far, far away. No, he's describing to them the lives they live and the life we live. So the book of Revelation doesn't just relate to the last period of history, but Christians in every generation. It's our story. It's your story, I would argue. Well, chapter 10 and 11 is another interlude. Yes, I've got to wrap up here very quickly. So, uh, what is the significance of the interlude in chapter 10? In chapter 10, you know, we see another angel coming down, a glorious angel, and uh, there, there's more that will be accomplished. Just a couple interesting things in chapter 10. The seven thunders sound. John was about to write what they uh, sounded, and then he's told not to write it which I interpret to mean there are dimensions of the judgment to come that are not revealed to us. God doesn't tell us everything, right? There are things hidden from us. There, there is revelation to come that is not yet disclosed, and we will not know it until it becomes a reality. But the main point, the main point of chapter 10 is this. John is commissioned again as a prophet. Let's, let's read that, starting in verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll 
I think this is a different scroll than the one in chapter 5. Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and, the, and on the land. By the way, he mainly uses a different Greek word for the scroll. Only, uh, so I think that's one indication we have a different scroll. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, in words that resonate with the book of Ezekiel, if you remember this, reading Ezekiel, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So why? I think this fits with Ezekiel as well. It will make your stomach bitter because you, there are gonna be words of judgment, but it's sweet as honey because it's God's word, and God's word is always sweet and right. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. That's God's word, it's sweet, right? But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. There's more to say. And I think there's an indication as well that the church will have a prophetic witness during the inter-Advent age. Now, we're coming to chapter 11, and it's 9.15. And chapter 11 is a very controversial chapter and a very important chapter. And I cannot, and you are going to be happy for me to say, I will not start it right now because I can't do justice to it in five minutes or four minutes. So I'm going to pray, and we'll pick it up tomorrow. Lord, we give thanks for your word. Lord, we recognize there are things in this book that are difficult for us. But Lord, we pray that we would seek your truth and we would rejoice than the fact that you are a God who is good and loving and kind and just and righteous and that your kingdom will come and your will will be done. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful servants enduring to the end as we keep our faith in Jesus, our Savior. Give us a good rest tonight, we pray. May we be prepared tomorrow to come and to worship you as we gather with the saints. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.